people don't understand oftentimes that, you know, whether it's the law or, you know, just whether it's organizing in general, that we need to start thinking about our safety and the way that we um, organize as collective safety and collective solidarity. And that's really key, particularly when it comes to the law. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. Protest and activism are a cornerstone of change, particularly in social issues. While our right to protest and speak are guaranteed by law in both Canada and the United States, some law enforcement agencies push back at those participating in protest or activism, at times beyond their rights. Understanding what your rights are is important for all advocates, but especially for those who hit the pavement as part of their advocacy. From knowing how to keep yourself and those around you safe to what to say when things go wrong, there's a lot to learn. And to help get started on the path of learning, Bina Ahmed, a public defender with the Legal Aid Society in Manhattan, New York, joined Defender Radio to discuss activists' rights how to interact with law enforcement, and when it's time to call a lawyer. We had met at this Annie First Society conference in New York City, which was uh, an amazing trip for me. It was my first time in the city, and I absolutely loved it there. Oh, first um, time? Yeah, okay. it was my first time in New York. Oh, and welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, and your, your presentation was really good. What I liked about it is you made it very practical. This was not sort of high-level legalese stuff, but very literally... Mm the things people need to know to keep themselves and others safe. And you started by talking about the importance of individual activists or advocates or protesters recognizing that they have a role in other people's safety at events, whatever the event may be. Um, and I thought maybe we could start there, just talking a little bit about sort of why it matters that we understand what our rights are and also that we can create problems where problems don't exist by not knowing the rights and the laws. Sure. Thank you. And thank you so much for your kind words and for having me and, and doing the podcast that you do. I think it's incredibly important. Um, yeah. And I'd like to really always start with that, with what we're starting with about, um, you know, people ask me to do these know your rights trainings and talk about the law and, um, and you know, bring my legal expertise about the criminal system um, to activists and teach them what they need to know about, well, wh what do I do when I get arrested? And I think, um, and that's a great, you know, question to ask and thing to know, but I think that we always need to start with how we're engaging in politics and in movement work and what we bring to the table, you know, way before we even start to protest or uh, start to organize and start to engage in this um, in this process and in these movements, because people don't understand oftentimes that, um, you know, whether it's the law or, you know, just whether it's organizing in general, that we need to start uh, thinking about our safety and the way that we um, organize as collective safety and collective solidarity. And that's really key, particularly when it comes to the law. And I think that that's probably um, a universal concept in that, um, you know, the, the law is 
really, I think, an oppressive tool. And I say this as a lawyer, and I didn't go to law school because I loved the law or wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school because I saw the law as an oppressive tool, historically as an oppressive tool, particularly used to target, um, you know, people of color, people from the global south, LGBTQ um, folks and people from our communities, um, non undocumented folks or people who are not particularly U.S. citizens, um, you know, people who are of different abilities. And so, I wanted to understand that and to, to fight it and to change that. And so, you know, that's the, the framework of the law, and particularly in U.S. context. So we have to understand that our collective safety and collective solidarity, that concept and understanding that we have to protect each other and center the most vulnerable and the most targeted and the most historically targeted in our organizing, if we do that and we start from that point of view, that is what is going to keep us the most safe. So for instance, you know, many times we have, you know, many well-meaning white solidarity activists take our, you know, most privileged activists, we can say, as our, you know, a U.S. citizen, a U.S. born citizen, a white cisgendered male activist, mm -hmm. um, heteronormative, you know, gender conforming, coming into activist work, you know, really well-meaning and wanting to do this work, but, you know, can oftentimes come in thinking, well, I have nothing to hide, you know, I'm, I know the law, I know my rights, and I'm, uh, you know, going to come and engage in this in this work. And so going to a protest, I can do whatever, you know, do what I want. Um, even if I get arrested, you know, whatever, that's okay. I'll take that risk if I want to. But, you know, that's my arrest and my, you know, rights or whatever, my freedom that I'll choose to compromise or not. What they don't understand is that when they come and then engage in this, um, you know, let's say they come and engage in be more provocative, um, you know, actions that maybe the group had not consented to, they can engage in certain risks and take certain risks that others in the group cannot. And the law and officers particularly will look at the entire group and they will target more heavily people of color, undocumented folks, and they will that white cisgendered male activist. And so they might even arrest just everyone around them, for instance, and the people who will pay a heavier price for that white cisgendered male activist is the person who maybe didn't even choose to take on the risk that that male activist did. Um, you know, and then, of course, once you're arrested, it's not just that you're put through the system, but particularly for um, movements and then folks who are historically targeted, it's, you know, the the legal systems that we have, of course, historically have looked into movement work, have looked into our politics, have tried to and have successfully spied on, monitored our movements, have sent infiltrators and informants into our movements, you know, have really wanted to break apart and, and come into um, our movement work and, and spy on our movements. And they do that, you know, first by, uh, or one of the ways they do that is through an arrest where then they can at least get access to someone, they can get access to your phone um, if they have really heavy charges they can levy against someone, they can use that as leverage to force people to come become informants. And so people need to understand that their individual safety is only one part of the puzzle. And that collective safety and collective solidarity is where we need to be focused. That is what keeps us the safest and the strongest. So I hope that gets sort of the framework of where I'm, I'm coming from a little clearer. Absolutely. And that's something when we talk about intersectional activism, whatever mm -hmm. our, our core issue is, uh, that's one of the reasons it's so important to talk about that is to understand the historical context in which some of this is happening as well. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, I am a, I grew up in as a Canadian citizen in the suburbs of a Canadian city as mm -hmm. a cisgender, white, heteronormative man, mm -hmm. uh, gender conforming, uh, et cetera. And yeah. it was 
it, it's jarring when you first learn about a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. And I'm very, very glad there are people like you who are willing to take the time to explain yeah. it to people <laughs> like me, uh, because it does, it, it really opens up the conversation about all human rights, about all issues of, of feminism or veganism or LGBTQ rights, whatever subject we're talking about, when we can start to see those parallels in the historical context, it really matters uh, right. and informs how we address a lot of issues as well. Right. Well, and let's, I mean, and also want to say, throwing that back to you, it's also thank you for being an example of how you receive that information, right? And being open and talking about your privilege and then saying, yeah, like, I'm, I'm grateful to, to hear this and to learn from folks and to be a part of this movement in a way that is supportive, right? And understanding privilege. But then we're talking about collective safety and collective solidarity. And I, you know, and you want to come to the table with the best politics. So mm-hmm. you're a, a wonderful example of well, that. So thank you for that. Uh, and as a cisgender, white, straight, Man, I will accept your praise. Um, but we're, we're going to get into a cycle if we keep doing this. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> we'll just have a two-hour-long podcast. That's fine with me. Okay. Uh, I love the way that you uh, cook pancakes, by the way. We, okay. can, we just move into that next. Uh, anyway, um, so talking about this, the, the next thing is when we're at an event. And again, this this comes from whether we are, you know, in the street with a sign or we are, um, you know, at a sit-in or even at a coffee shop listening to a speaker, uh, understanding our rights, understanding the process as well, I think is very important. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I grew up watching police procedurals and I worked as a journalist covering crime for a long time. So a lot of it was familiar to me, but hearing the flip side of it, of how to protect yourself and others was very interesting. So why don't we go through that process of, uh, I think the way you had sort of organized it was talking about, uh, am I be like asking the question, am I being held? Am I being questioned, et cetera, et cetera. So sure. maybe, maybe sort of from when law enforcement, uh, approaches on. Yes, that'd be, I would love to do that. So, um, yes. Yeah, so when, um, law enforcement and we can start from sort of a, a linear we'll do it from a linear timeline. And I always say that as a caveat, because of course it can come at you from any which way, you know, law enforcement can come and approach you and sort of skip through this timeline. But for the purposes of teaching people sort of how to invoke your rights at different stages of these interactions, I'm going to, um, and I usually teach it from, um, you know, we'll start with if they, uh, law enforcement approach you on the street um, and they stop you and they try to uh, speak to you and question you, that's first a conversation stage. Um, and we'll, talk about what you should say at that stage. And then, you know, if they then hold you longer and then they try to question you longer, um, they try to pat you down or whatnot, that's the detention um, stage or the extended detention and search stage. And we'll talk about like what you do there and what rights you invoke there, what you say. Um, and then, you know, we'll go through if they actually uh, full-blown um, arrest you, um, put cuffs on you and try to, you know, put you in a squad car and what you say there and what you should do from there. And so, and then I say that, you know, that, you know, of course that makes like logical linear sense, but oftentimes it can, you know, in many of my clients' cases, you know, police officers will skip over the conversation stage. They'll just run up to a client and throw them against the wall and start to search them, um, with no conversation. So, you know, I say that, that people just need to adapt, um, you know, to whatever law enforcement will throw at you. Um, and it also is that, um, there are things that, people need to understand there are things that law enforcement, of course, on the books are, you know, should and should not do. And then there's a reality of what they do do, 
So, you know, of course, they're not supposed to do certain things like violate your rights and, and you know, just come up and um, start questioning you about your politics or whatnot. Um, but then, of course, we know that they violate people's rights all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of this is um, it's not meant to be bulletproof. It's not going to stop um, necessarily any illegal actions by law enforcement. Um, it may not completely stop you from being arrested, but it's meant to minimize the harm um, and to keep you the most safe and keep, of course, you know, as we keep saying, collective safety, collective solidarity, keep you and your communities and your organizations and your movements the most safe. So um, so with that, we'll start with, let's say, law enforcement comes up and they stop you on the street. This is the conversation stage. Um, you know, usually they may start with just, excuse me, I need to talk to you. Can I quickly you know, stop and ask you a question? So what we recommend um, is that you, um, you can answer basic, non-incriminating information. Um, like, you know, if they ask you, can I just, what's your name? Where are you going? Um, you can answer that and that you likely just should answer that, but answer it in very short answers. So keep it to five words or less. So the five finger rule, um, because you don't want to just start talking because you're nervous, which many people do. It's totally normal and understandable. Um, but keep it to five words or less answering basic, you know, non-incriminating, uh, questions. So if it's, if the question is, you know, excuse me, uh, can I talk to you? You can say, yes. Um, You know, what's your name? My name's Bina. You know, so that was three words. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the next question could be, where are you going? Um, Or where are you coming from? You know, or I'm going home or coming from work. Right. So those are very basic, you know, non-incriminating, you know, questions and answers. Um, You know, I didn't say uh, anything more specific. I didn't go on and on. I didn't say I'm coming from work. I work at the Legal Aid Society in Manhattan, New York. The addresses, you know, I didn't I didn't go on and on. I didn't give too much information, but I answered those basic questions. Um, So then at that point, that, you know, conversation phase, um, I've answered, you know, very basic questions they've asked me. Now, what you need to do there is then you need to say the first set of magic words to try to end this conversation uh, phase or to try to end the police encounter. And why, why I say that you need to, you meaning the person who's being stopped, um, say these magic words is because police will not um, usually just tell you, you know, what you, that you're free to go on their own. Um, and they, of course, are not to be trusted to tell you what your rights are. Many people will ask the police, like, do I have to answer these questions or do you have the right to do this? And it's really important for people to understand you can't look to the police to tell you what your rights are. You need to know them. And they're not your lawyers. So after you answer those basic uh, questions about your name, maybe where you're going, you need to immediately say on your own, am I free to leave? Am I free to leave? Those are the first set of magic words. And now once you you know ask that question, those first set of magic words, um, police will either say, okay, yes, you're free to leave. Then the, the encounter is done and you can walk away you know, slowly and calmly um, and then you're done. But for our purposes, uh, we're going to assume that they say, no, you're not free to leave. So now the encounter has escalated up one step to the detention phase. So you have asked them if you are free to leave and they have said uh, no. So now the very next question you ask them after that is the next set of magic words because you want to actually check, okay, so now I, you know, we were just in this conversation just stage of the encounter. Now it sounds like I'm in the detention phase. So you want to check, are you detaining me? That's the next set of magic words. Are you detaining me? Because you want to see if you are actually now being detained. So 
for our purposes, just for education, it would make logical sense that they would say yes, because if you weren't free to leave, it would make sense now that you are being detained. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they might try to mess with you and say um, no, which would make wouldn't really make logical sense. So if they say no, you're not being detained, then just go back down one step in the encounter back to the conversation um, phase and say okay, so then am I free to leave? You don't want to just start walking away. You don't want to escalate the encounter in any way. Um, you just want to remain calm and just stick to those magic words. Um, but for our purposes, we're going to assume that, you know, if you weren't free to leave and then you ask, are you detaining me? They were going to likely say yes. Um, so you can ask why, uh, you know, why are you detaining me or just why? Um, they may or may not give you an answer. They may not, you know, tell you the truth, um, you know, but that you do have um, the power to ask uh, that question if you'd like to. Now, at this point, you want to then say the next set of magic words, which is, I wish to remain silent. I wish to remain silent. Now, this is very key in the sense that the point of majority of uh, detentions, temporary detentions on the street, is uh, to get more information. Usually either they're doing an investigation on the street um, or they might have already been monitoring you um, for a while now and they've now you know been following you either from work or from home and they're trying to talk to you and crack you and get you to give them information about who knows what. So you want to clue them into the fact that, okay, fine, you cannot you know, fight them. You obviously know you're being detained, but this detention is pointless. They are not getting information from you. You're going to remain silent. I'm not saying anything. Fine. We can stand here for however long on the street and I'll just stare at you and I'm going to remain silent. So you want to clue them in that they can do, you know, they have the power, not the right, you know, people have rights, police have power, but they have the power to detain you, but it's going to be meaningless. You're going to remain silent. So I wish to remain silent. And this is also very key for people to remember that um, the, the point also of like, you know, remaining silent, not answering these, you know, more probing questions like who do you organize with? What are your politics? Because they can seem like innocent questions. You know, there's nothing, you know, that sounds like, let's say, for instance, you know, you say, oh, I organize with, you know, whatever animal rights group, who do you organize with? I organize with this person. Um, but, you know, they're really great. They're very you know peaceful. They abide by all the laws. They do this work. You know, that information might sound innocent enough. And it might actually sound like you're standing up for your friend and, and saying that your friend is law abiding and, you know, not someone that the police need to be worried about. But what you're doing is you're giving them information you don't need to be giving them. And what's important to understand is you don't know what police are investigating you don't actually know what they already know. You have no idea if they are stopping you on the street just randomly or if they've been monitoring you for a while. You also don't know if they're investigating you or your friend. They might be stopping you to actually get information about your friend or your organization. And so, you know, this goes to the principle of minimizing our contact with law enforcement. All of this is focused around the collective safety, collective solidarity, and minimizing contact with law enforcement. It will never help us to give more information to law enforcement than they already have, because as we know in the digital age, they probably have a lot of information on all of us already, is not going to help us to engage more in law with law enforcement. It's not going to help you to try to talk your way out of a detention or an arrest. It's not going to help your community to give them even what seems like innocuous or innocent information on your friend, because you have no idea what laws are on the books. You have no idea how many different crimes um, and you know criminal statutes are on the books, how you could be violating them. You have no idea what they're investigating. So the best principle is to minimize contact and remain silent.
So at this phase, we've now said, okay, I wish to remain silent. Now, you know, this is where we want to you know, try to slow things down in our brain um, and become our own observers. You know, try to if you can. And it's it's hard because it's it's terrifying to be stopped by police. They are armed to the teeth with military-grade weapons. They're usually much larger than the majority of people. Um, they're trained to interrogate people. They're trained to intimidate people. Um, and so it's naturally terrifying. But it's very important for people to try to slow things down in your mind, take some breaths, um, and look around you, you know, see one, just how many officers are there. There might be one who's talking to you. There might be one more in the background watching. Um, if you can see their badge numbers or their names, try to remember that. If you're on a street corner and maybe you're in front of a deli or, um, you know, a store or there's other people around, try to see who you're in front of. If there's, if it's a neighbor, if it's a deli where there's, um, you know, a a surveillance camera outside. These are all things that could be useful information for your defense attorney if you are arrested later, um, or just an attorney if you want to sue later if you're not arrested, um, and just try to become you know, your own observer. Now, at this point where we've now said we've passed the conversation phase, we are now in the detention phase, we've said we wish to remain silent, um, this is often where um, a pat-down can come in. So, you know, in the U.S., it's called a, a Terry uh, Frisk. It's based on a Supreme Court case. Now, a, a frisk on the street um, is meant to be um, for the officer's safety, um, which is, you know, somewhat laughable because they are armed with military-grade weapons, um, but it's for their safety. Um that when they are stopping someone, they have the power, um, not the right, but the power to pat you down to see if you have weapons on you. So they're supposed to just be allowed to pat your outer clothing down to see if you have what feels like a hard metal object that could be a weapon. Mm -hmm. um, and so then if it feels like you do, then they could then go into your pocket and take it out. Uh, they shouldn't be going into your pocket if it feels like there's something soft or squishy, like a dime bag or anything. Uh, in your pocket. Um, but, you know, they could, of course, you know, that doesn't mean they're not going to violate your rights, but that's what the pat down is for. So if that starts to happen, um, you know, one police may not uh, actually ask your permission. They may just start to pat you down or they may just say, uh, put your arms out and spread your legs. I'm going to you know, pat you down. Um, or they may actually ask to say, OK, is, I'm going to is it OK if I pat you down or I'm going to pat you down now? Whatever way this happens, what you should we recommend people do is not to physically fight them, not to resist, not to stiffen your body or try to move away because because that can qu quickly escalate to violence um, on you and you want to stay safe. Um, so we recommend people physically comply, you know, if you have to put your arms out, you know, or whatnot, do what they physically tell you to do. But at the same time, you now say the next set of magic words, which is, I do not consent to this search. I do not consent to this search. And that protects your rights against, um, you know, are challenging this search uh, later in court. You are not, you're deeming that, you know, I don't legally consent to this search. I'm not physically fighting you, but I'm not waiving my rights to challenge this search. Because uh, in the U.S., it is um, deemed that you consent to that search if you, you know, say, sure, you can pat me down, or even if you just stay silent. Silence is consent. So if you're just quiet, also probably because you're terrified, that is consent. So you really have to reach in and and find that voice of yours, and even if it's shaky, and just say, I don't consent to this search. Try to say it as loud as possible in case there are people who may be cop watching and filming the encounter, um, and they can record that. Um, and we'll, you know, I can talk about cop watching uh, in a minute as well. So 
after this happens, you know, at this point, logically, then the next step could be uh, the arrest. So this is where police, they may tell you you're under arrest. They may not. They may just slap uh, cuffs on you. Um and this is where then, you know, in the U.S., they should, and they, again, may or may not read you what's called your Miranda rights. So your Miranda rights were, of course, based on a Supreme Court case um, that the police are supposed to read you what your rights are once you're arrested. And those rights are that you have the right to remain silent and that anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. So... Um, it is uh, imperative that whether police read you those rights or not, that people understand that those rights apply to you the minute you are arrested. So whether they read you those rights or not, it is extremely important to, you know, people forget everything else that I tell them. I always say the most important thing for people to do is once you're arrested, the minute those cuffs go on, um, you should immediately say, I'm not talking without my lawyer. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking without my lawyer. That's the last set of magic words. And then you have to stay silent. So it's very important that you don't say, I'm not talking without my lawyer, but I'm going to just tell you one thing about this case, you know, or whatever <laughs> happened. Yeah. Um, because then you've now sort of talking and now they can talk to you back and it's not deemed to be a violation of your rights. And, you know, not talking means, you know, giving statements about, um, you know, your case or, you know, into, you know, talking in an interrogation context, you know, you should, of course, if they bring you to the precinct and ask you, uh, you know, biographical booking questions like your name, address, phone number that you should give. That's not deemed like, you know, waiving your rights um, to remain silent. Um, but, you know, of course, don't answer questions about, um, OK, what did you do? You know, or tell me about this group you organized with. You know, again, just keep repeating. I'm not talking without my lawyer, you know, because, of course, police, they shouldn't try to question you after you say that, but they still may, um, and just keep repeating that I'm not talking without my lawyer. So those are the, the basic overarching, um, you know, things you should say. So just quickly summarizing when you're stopped in the street, am I free to leave? If they say no, you say, are you detaining me? If they say yes, you say, okay, I wish to remain silent. You can ask, um, and then, and then at that point, um, a, fr a stop and a frisk, a pat down might happen. You should say, I do not consent to this search while you physically uh, still comply. And then after that, if they arrest you, you should say, I'm not talking without my lawyer. And those are the sort of main magic words and, you know, invoking of rights that people should remember when they're encountering police on the street. Now, something that I learned from Law and Order, which means it's totally true. <laughs> Um, totally. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's how TV works. Um, <laughs> are police officers allowed to lie to someone to try and entice them to speak yes. or to try and convince them to speak? Yes, absolutely. That is extremely key. And I'm very glad you asked that. Police are absolutely allowed to stretch the truth, quote, stretch the truth, fabricate. They're basically allowed to lie to people to get them to talk. So it is that it's scary that yes, law and order. I mean, there's many things about it that are completely, you know, laughable. I don't even watch the show because I, I'm sure I just, I would just have, but you know, I would get heartburn at the end of it. But like, but there's many things about like legal shows where like, yes, it's totally true where you see that stereotypical, you know, cop coming into an interrogation room and like slamming a file down and saying, Hey, you know, um, you know, your friends have already confessed and said that you did it. 
and I see that you're a nice guy and, you know, but if you, you know, tell me what happened and you write out an apology, I will tell the judge to go easy on you. You'll probably just get a ticket or you'd have to pay a fine and they'll let you go. And then there's like a nice cop behind them and saying, he's just in a bad mood. But if you just go along with it, it'll be fine. That absolutely happens. And that happens every day. The good cop, bad cop routine absolutely happens. They are legally allowed to lie to you, to get you to talk, to get information from you. It's an interrogation tactic. And it is not deemed to be a violation of your rights. It's deemed to be a police, um, you know, method of interrogation and investigation. It's atrocious. It's something people need to understand. That's part of the you know thing I tell people that you can't look to police to tell you what your rights are. Mm-hmm. Many times people will say, "Well, I asked the cop. You know, do I have to answer these questions? Or, you know, or what? You know, what my rights are? Do I can I do this or can they do that? And they're not your lawyer, right? You know, their job is to make arrests and to you know give then these arrests to the prosecutor to then prosecute. And so, you know, your lawyer is your defense attorney. And so you don't get access to your defense attorney until later, but they are absolutely allowed to lie to you to get you to talk. And you'd mentioned cop watching, and this is something that's becoming more and more and more important. And I think will remain important until we see body cams on every officer all the time. Hmm. Uh, And arguably even then we'll still need it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think we saw, and I'm sure you would have seen this viral video that came out last week of a woman um, who is watching and went over and started recording a young man, a homeless man being uh, uh, told to get on the ground with guns pointed at him by police. Uh, I don't know if I saw that video. Oh, but it's, it's, it's uh, an intense one. It's a uh, young black man and a woman went over and uh, a black God. woman went over to him and stood with him recording and oh sort of told him, okay, your life isn't worth this. Just do what they're telling you to do. And mm-hmm. he's saying, I didn't do anything. She said, I believe you, but your life isn't worth this. They're killing us. Just do what mm. they're telling you to do and stayed with them. Mm. Um, mm. And it's just it's a very like, how, how bad yeah. could that have gone had she not been there? But um, right. So right. right. Let's talk cop yeah. watching. Uh, yes. What is it? Why is it important? And why is it legal? Yes. So, yes, you absolutely have the right to film police activity that's happening in public. You know, you, of course, can't go into, you know, police uh, precincts in the back into their offices, you know, and film when they're doing a private investigation, you know, with their colleagues. But when it's on the street and or they're, you know, coming into um, your home um, and searching your home, you have the right to film police activity. So and I you know, recommend that if it is safe for you to do so, um, you absolutely should. And so this is, again, where collective safety and collective solidarity, that theme constantly comes up. So, you know, for my, you know, well-meaning, um, you know, white solidarity male heteronormative cisgendered activists it is much safer um, for them to to do cop watching and they get much less pushback from the cops mm-hmm. um, you know than from folks who are historically targeted and marginalized uh, in our society that's not to say that folks um, of all you know backgrounds and identities don't and should if they feel comfortable cop watch um, but that is just one role where um, people can um, you know step up if they are of the more privileged background and they can do cop watching so cop watching is 
is the filming of police activity. And so it's very, um, the, the encounter you described seeing um, is one of the very typical and common uh, ways that people cop watch, where they see police stopping someone on the street um, or in their car, and they, you know, might see it, and they, they stop and they film it. Now, you know, there's cop watching where there are actually formal teams um, who actually train each other to cop watch, and they go out uh, wearing, you know, sweatshirts or T-shirts that say cop watch, and they actually go out in teams into neighborhoods that are heavily overly policed, uh, looking for police encounters to then, you know, film, um, to, you know, monitor and to document police activity. So they'll actually go out and look and try to help, you know, or, or monitor these police encounters. So, you know, comp watching is on the most bare sense, it is filming police activity. But on the, you know, political sense, it is to, um, you know, try to not only hold, you know, police, of course, accountable, but it can save someone's, you know, life. It can, when police see that someone is filming, they can often, and of course not always, and I, you know, see this thinking of um, Eric Garner and that they knew they were being filmed and they still killed him on video. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it can often um, save someone's life where if police know they're being filmed and watched, um, that they can, they sometimes will actually then be somewhat less harsh with the person that they're um, stopping or arresting, um, you know, or just, you know, be even maybe not, you know, as aggressive and then either walk away from just harassing the person that they're, you know, the homeless person, they might just be telling them, you know, keep, keep it moving or whatnot. So, um, that is where the, the political nature of cop watching can come in, you know, and again, it's, it's very important to, if you're filming, um, and you're cop watching to do it, um, safely and from a safe distance, um, not only for yourself, because you as a cop watcher can end up getting arrested. If you physically get in the way, like if you're too close and you're, um, physically getting actually between the officer and the person they're either arresting or stopping and frisking, um, or questioning that can be, um, you know, obstructing government administration, which is a, a criminal statute in New York, and there's similar ones throughout the country. So you're getting in the way of an officer's duties. So you could actually then be arrested yourself. Um, of course, if you physically touch an officer, that could, and it, you actually might even slightly injure them, that can be felony level assault. Um, so you could then be injured, then, you know, they will likely roughly arrest you and they will probably destroy your camera. So then it, you know, sort of defeats, not only it gets you arrested, it defeats the purpose of cop watching because now you don't have your footage. Um, but it's also important to do it safely and not, um, you know, be provoking the officers in the sense where you're swearing at them and getting, you know, really angry and like provoking them, you know, as much as it's understandable, like, like, you know, you effing pigs and blah, blah, blah. And like, because that can also get them really riled up and they'll take out their aggression on the person that you're trying to help who mm-hmm. you're cop watching, you know, the person they're arresting, it may not really help them if you're pissing off the cops that, that who are already cuffing that person and they have like their knee in their back, you know, not really going to help the person, you know, if you're pissing off those cops even more. So, and then, you know, third, it's not going to really help. Um, you know, and again, I know that the criminal system is, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a system of justice whatsoever. Um, but, uh, keeping in mind that it doesn't necessarily help if this case needs to go to trial. Um, if I, as a, the defense attorney, need to use that footage, um, you know, for this person's trial, it doesn't help me. If the footage is shaky, first of all, if you're not calmly standing there filming it, but you're, you know, interfering, you're physically jumping around, and you're also swearing and calling the cops pigs and whatnot, 
doesn't necessarily help me in front of a judge or a jury if that's my quote unquote credible video, you know, like I'm trying to make it, you know, it would be much more helpful if the video is calm and quiet and just observing versus shaky and the person filming is like swearing and screaming. It doesn't lend credibility to our side as much in the court, not saying that in, in the sort of realm of the world, but in the court. When we're talking about a lot of this stuff, um, it, like in the, in the back of my mind, I think of the the lawyers I know personally and professionally through work primarily. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, like I, I've often uh, contacted uh, Camille Labchuk of Animal uh, Justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spoken with a couple of attorneys from Animal Legal Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the attorneys that we work with through the fur bears. So I kind of like if if something comes up, I feel confident that I have people I can reach out to. Yeah. Um, whether it is in my role as a writer and content producer needing someone to look at something and say, you know, am I too close to the line on libel here? Or right. if it's, hey, I may have run down someone in my car and <laughs> I can't get the blood out. Oh, do you okay. have a shovel I can borrow? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I've done that. That's hypothetical. Yeah, yes. don't do that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. No, but but my point is I, I I kind of I've got the range of people I can think of who to contact. <laughs> For a lot of activists, though, I think um particularly younger activists who don't have those relationships in place, right. how do they go about developing maybe a network or knowing who to contact? I is this a case where you can just when you like as we discussed saying I'm not speaking until I talk to or I'm only going to speak to my lawyer, um, and you don't have a lawyer? Do you just assume that they're going to find someone? What what's the best way to sort of prepare for some of these eventualities? Right. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So um, when I, I tell people to say I'm not talking without my lawyer, my lawyer is the theoretical sense of the lawyer that or the legal counsel I am guaranteed to under the Constitution, that you will be given a lawyer, you know, whether you have one or not. And, you know, I think majority of people don't have sort of a a lawyer on retainer, um, just, you know, ready to call who will show up at a precinct, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, You know, so my lawyer is normally your public defender, your free lawyer that the court will give you once you're brought to uh, your arraignment. So um, just that you are protected by your right to counsel. And until you have a lawyer that is given to you, uh, they're not technically legally supposed to even try to talk to you again um, until a lawyer for you who's been given to you is present. So um, yeah, so you don't need to worry that like, oh, but I say my lawyer and I don't have a lawyer. That's totally fine. Um you know, I think the larger question is a very good question about like, well, what do people do if they have, you know, legal questions? What are they, you know, what are they supposed to do and who they're supposed to call? Um, you know, definitely, you know, I put myself out as someone who's always willing to help, you know, people can individually reach out to me. Um, but of course I'm only one person that doesn't really help, you know, for a nation of, you know, or, or multi-nations of people we're trying to, you know, get mobilized. Um, you know, I think that, uh, having organizations like, you know, animal legal defense fund and the organizations that you work with are, um, very key. I think, um, the know your rights information that's available online, um, is also just really key to, for people to just study and know, because I think even having lawyers on retainer, a lot of the things are, um, things that people wouldn't need a lawyer to necessarily call and to ask, um, you know, like, of course, if there's a, a criminal case, you will get a lawyer eventually. But, um, you know, if you 
really study the, the know your rights information that is out there and what you should do and what you should know and say if you're arrested or if you're stopped by the police. Um, you know, that is something you can do as a, just a, a person in the world. Um, but the organizations that are, that are out there that have good politics that you can call and then they can either refer you to a lawyer. There are many different bar associations um, throughout uh, the U.S. and then I'm sure also in Canada that um, have different criminal defense um, you know, committees that you can call if you need a lawyer who can, you know, help you with an issue or a First Amendment lawyer or a free speech lawyer or, um, you know, when you're afraid of like, you know, I'm a journalist, I want to publish this, but I'm afraid I'm going to get sued for libel. Mm -hmm. um, I think the bar associations are, are really um, great because I also think, um, you know, especially with nonprofits, I think there are many great nonprofits out there. But I think on the flip side, you know, many nonprofits are get stuck in the nonprofit industrial complex where they're just really worried constantly about fundraising, fundraising. And bar associations, um, you know, aren't necessarily doing that. You know, they get their dues just from the attorneys who pay for them when they are registered. And then the attorneys can just join the committees and then there's committees and, and then they just sort of do their work within the committee. So they're not, their main focus is not fundraising, the attorneys that are there. Their main focus is just their practitioners in their field. And then, you know, the Bar Association can refer you to those committees who do the work on the subject area you need help in. So I, I think the Bar Associations are really untapped resources more so than the nonprofits. I think sometimes nonprofits, um, there can be either, you know, a conflict of interest or not necessarily as wide of an array of um, attorneys uh, as we might need. To learn more about the Legal Aid Society of New York, visit LegalAidNYC.org. Bina can be found on Twitter at BinaHamidESQ. That's it for now, folks. I want to thank Bina for joining me and all of you for listening. As always, I hope you'll follow me on social media, at Defender Radio on Twitter and Facebook, and at Howie Michael on Instagram, where you can find out about upcoming episodes and interviews, regale in my horrible sense of humor, and see adorable photos of JJ the Hamilton Hound. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.